At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello there, fellow Flyers. Welcome to the Plane Crash Podcast. This is your captain of the podcast, Michael Bauer. It's been too long since our last episode. Some of you out there might have spent a large part of 2021 asking yourselves, did a giant anvil fall from the sky and crush Michael and Tess? Are they still living, breathing, functioning human beings on planet Earth? Well, I'm happy to announce that we're both still living and breathing, Functioning, on the other hand, well, that may be a bit of a stretch, but we're doing the best we can, and we're happy to be here today. On the 33rd episode of PCPC, we're going to be taking a look at United Airlines Flight 173, a scheduled flight from New York City to Portland, Oregon, with a brief stopover in Denver, Colorado, on Thursday, December 28th, 1978. We want to give an enormous thank you to the Patreon crew. Thank you to everyone that's still part of the Patreon crew. Thank you to anyone that was ever part of the Patreon crew. I know it's been quite a drought in the land of PCPC, and I hope everyone that's contributed knows that we appreciate their support. We realize that you have a budget and totally appreciate your contribution to keeping our little show up and running. If you're really jonesing for a new episode out there, we released a Patreon-only episode on Alaska Airlines Flight 261 this past summer on our Patreon page. If you want to listen, you can join for as little as a buck a month at patreon.com forward slash plane crash pod. That's patreon.com forward slash plane crash pod. Thank you again to the Patreon crew for your endless support. Our guest on today's episode needs no introduction, but we'll get one nonetheless. She's a part-time lion tamer and full-time conspiracy theorist, Miss Tessa Andrade. 
Tess, how are you doing? <laughs> Hi, Michael. Um, I, yeah, I had to leave my lions to make it to this gig, but I'm happy to be here. I'm sure they'll be fine hanging out in the den for a little bit. Well, yes, they're well tamed. So we are two years into a worldwide pandemic. How are you holding up? Are you having as much fun as the rest of us? I'm I'm all right. I'm hanging in there. I would say I'm probably having about the same amount of fun as everyone else is. Yeah, it's been really a dream come true for me. I always knew as a little boy, one day I wanted to grow up and sit in my house for two years and lose all my friendships. <laughs> same. We're living the dream, you and me. Um, anything you want to say to the PCPC crew, Tess? Oh, gosh, you're putting me on the spot here, Michael. Um, I would say that our New Year's resolution this year is to make more PCPC episodes than we did last year, yes. which will probably be easy to do. That would be good. I The reason that there hasn't been a ton of PCPC episodes is because I've been getting a master's degree in public policy, stare at a computer all day, research, write papers, and take tests, and it chews up 50 hours of my week. So I have little time for staring at a computer, researching plane incidents, but I'm going to try and get up to just once a month. Once a month seems good. Oh, yeah, totally. It's like getting your period every month. <laughs> yes, exactly. The My man period of, here's my explanation <laughs> of a plane incident. Um, what have you been up to? Anything that you've been watching that uh, you would give the old Tess Andrade seal of approval on? Ooh, well, last night I watched the documentary Misha and the Wolves. Oh, sounds interesting. It is. I actually think that our listeners would appreciate this story. It's kind of one of those documentaries that starts out one way and then it the story completely shifts and it becomes something entirely different. I know that's very vague, but I don't want to spoil anything for anyone who might watch it. Yeah, that sounds interesting. Um, one last question for you. How are you feeling about 2022? Is this going to be your year? Well, I famously said that 2020 was going to be the best year ever. And then in going into 2021, I kind of tried to dial it down a little bit and have lower expectations. Yes. You know what? I'm fine. I'm going going balls to the wall <laughs> with 2022. It's going to be the greatest year ever. I'm, I'm going to go back to my previous optimism because I think a little hope never hurt anybody. Uh, so yeah, I, I feel good about this year. I think it's going to be Better than the last two years, hopefully. Yeah, you heard it here first. Tess Andrade believes in 2022, and so should you. Tess, unfortunately, one big story in 2021 in regards to the airline industry has been the poor treatment of flight attendants by some passengers during flights throughout the year. Now, while I understand that living through a pandemic is mentally challenging, and many of us feel close to our breaking point, some of us passed by that point long ago. The abuse these people have had to put up with has been absolutely ridiculous. Already, flight attendants have had to deal with a high level of job insecurity as the ever-changing world moves forward and demand for travel yo-yos up and down as the virus mutates and seasons change. Every day, these workers are on the front line serving hundreds of passengers at a point in time when being exposed all day to the general public isn't exactly the most desirable thing. So on top of dealing with the job insecurity and the stress of being around tons of passengers during a pandemic, flight attendants have also had to deal with being attacked verbally and physically by unruly passengers all this year. The Association of Flight Attendants President Sarah Nelson recently commented, that since the FAA started keeping track of reports on incidents involving passengers and flight attendants, we've had more events in 2021 than we've had in the entire history of that record-keeping in aviation. 
There's been over 5,000 reports of unruly passengers in 2021. 85% of flight attendants have said that they've had to deal with an unruly passenger this year. 17% have said they've been physically assaulted. Flight attendants have been punched, kicked, called racial slurs, spat at, and screamed at. Many of the incidents have revolved around mask compliance, but a number of confrontations have stemmed from other issues as well. Tess, do you feel a ton of empathy for flight attendants working in today's world? They sure have had to deal with a lot of grief over the past two years. Do you have any suggestions on what airlines could do to keep this from reoccurring? I do. I think that they're just trying to do their job, so it's really not fair that they should become punching bags for the frustration that people are feeling this year over COVID and the politicization of wearing masks. Yeah. Um, I think that one idea, I mean, maybe this already exists, but would be just a fine for passengers not cooperating. Um, does that already yeah. exist? I think planes? there are fines right now, but I don't think they're significant enough. And I think just maybe just straight out bans of people. Like, we're getting to the point, I understand that people are stressed out and they think it's open season on flight attendants to get out their aggression. But I don't think anybody's really entitled to get on a plane. And there's this sense of entitlement. Flying on an airplane is a privilege, in my opinion. There's this unspoken agreement between passengers and airlines that passengers are going to pay money and airlines are going to get you somewhere safely and give you a little bubbly water while you're in the sky. It's definitely not a uh, license to start abusing the people that are there serving you. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> I think that flight attendants are, you know, in the best of circumstances, they're trying to make our flight more comfortable. And in the worst of circumstances, they're helping to save our lives. So they should be treated with respect. Res yeah, definitely. Of course. They're mostly there for safety. They're there for people's safety. And I don't think that people have treated them very kindly. So we here at PCPC want to let all you pilots, gate workers, flight attendants, and airport workers in general know that we appreciate you. We see you and we hope you have a great 2022. Hopefully people will be kinder and more respectful to you in the new year. Thanks for smiling, doing your jobs diligently, and delivering quality service despite having to deal with all of us. Thank you. Today's episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is an online counseling service where you can schedule online appointments around your unique schedule and your unique needs. What Uber is to car rides, BetterHelp is to therapy. It's counseling for the 21st century. To learn more and receive 10% off your first month, visit betterhelp.com forward slash plane crash pod. That's betterhelp.com forward slash plane crash pod. Thanks again to BetterHelp for the support. I like to mention at the top of every episode that I'm not an expert in aviation by any means. We started PCPC as a way to deal with our fears and anxieties surrounding flying. We reasoned that if we learned a little bit more about how incidents of the past help improve safety, maybe we'd be a little less nervous about flying in the future. We realized that in each incident we discuss, someone's mother, brother, neighbor, or friend may have lost their life or were seriously injured. We at no time want to be insensitive towards anyone. We just think that these incidents are important historical events that are worth discussing and realizing how they contributed to improving safety for all airline passengers in the present day. Tess, are you ready to get started on Flight 173? I am, Michael. United Airlines Flight 173 was a scheduled flight from New York City to Portland, Oregon, with a brief stopover in Denver, Colorado on Thursday, December 28, 1978. 
The plane used for Flight 173 was a McDonnell Douglas DC-861, one of three DC-8 models known as the Super 60s. During the late 1940s and early 50s, air travel was booming and aircraft manufacturers started slowly designing planes that would use a new technology to power their aircraft, jet engines. As some of you might recall from our last episode on the mid-air collision above the Grand Canyon, throughout the 1930s, the 1940s, and early 1950s, the Douglas Aircraft Company is just cleaning up when it comes to selling aircraft to both airlines and to the military. They're the top dog in the world of aircraft manufacturers. DC-3 was a massive success in the 1930s and early 40s. The DC-6 was another home run by the Douglas Aircraft Company in the late 40s and early 50s. So understandably, the people at Douglas are pretty content with life. For decades, they've been developing piston-powered aircraft, selling them well, and dominating the market. In the early 50s, they aren't exactly at the leading edge of developing airliners powered by jet engines. They've been successful with piston-powered planes, so that's where their focus remains. In 1952, the British aircraft manufacturer de Havilland releases the world's first commercial jetliner, the Comet. But sales of the Comet stall after a few accidents, and questions arise about the safety of its design. Another rising competitor of the Douglas Aircraft Company, Boeing, pours $16 million into the development of their jetliner, the Dash 80, in the early 1950s. Airline executives are a bit hesitant to embrace the idea of a jetliner, so Boeing builds a prototype of the Dash 80 and uses their new plane to showcase their jetliner to airline executives. Boeing uses the Dash 80 to develop future Boeing models like the 707 and the KC-135 Stratotanker. Again, the Douglas Company is somewhat apathetic towards the idea of a jetliner in the early 1950s. Douglas executives are sleeping on piles of money and laughing at their competitors' futile attempts to develop a product to rival their DC planes. Well, in the late summer of 1954, the United States Air Force signs a contract with Boeing to buy 29 of their KC-135 Stratotanker jetliners, planes used to refuel military planes while in the air. This deal that Boeing lands with the U.S. government for 29 jetliners finally gets the attention of the Douglas Aircraft Company. Suddenly, Don Douglas, the founder of the company, is complaining to government employees in Washington that this new contract with Boeing is unfair, and he's shocked that a competitor had a vision for a market of jetliners that he himself hadn't foreseen. So the Douglas company scrambles to get a Douglas version of a jetliner ready for production as soon as possible. Airline executives communicate with Douglas designers about the type of plane they'd be interested in buying. And in July 1955, one year after the Boeing U.S. Air Force contract, the Douglas Aircraft Company announces that they're going to be building their first ever jetliner, which will be called the DC-8. The DC-8 is a narrow-body jetliner with six abreast seating, rows of three seats on both sides of the aircraft separated by one aisle. The plane is powered by four jet engines, two engines below each wing. In October 1955, Pan Am placed the first order for 25 DC-8s. After Pan Am places this order, 
There's a mad frenzy amongst airlines to secure jetliners. While Douglas is taking orders for the DC-8, Boeing's taking orders for the Boeing 707. All major airlines, Delta, TWA, American Airlines, United Airlines, Lufthansa, Air India, anyone and everyone in the airline biz wants either a 707 or a DC-8. Boeing introduces their 707 to the market in October 1958, and Douglas releases the DC-8 in September 1959, almost a year afterwards. Boeing offered several different versions of the 707, which varied in size and allowed airlines to choose the version that best fit their needs. Initially, the DC-8 only came out in one size, which limited its usefulness for certain airlines. Demand for the Boeing 707 was higher than the demand for the DC-8. This misreading of the future of the aircraft manufacturing market by the Douglas Company, not foreseeing that there would be a massive demand for jetliners in the mid-50s and beyond, is largely responsible for the decline of the company during the late 50s and early 60s. The Douglas Aircraft Company would eventually merge with McDonnell Aircraft in 1967 to form McDonnell Douglas, which was headquartered in my hometown of St. Louis, Missouri. One more interesting tidbit about the DC-8 is that it is the first jetliner and first civilian aircraft to break the sound barrier. On August 21st, 1961, on a test flight which was collecting data on a new leading-edge wing design, Test pilots put a DC-8 into a dive from 41,000 feet, and the plane passed 660 miles per hour, made its way into the history books. DC-8s were manufactured out of a Douglas Aircraft factory located in Long Beach, California. The DC-8 Series 61, the type of plane used for Flight 173, flight we'll be discussing today, was released in early 1967. The Series 61 could carry up to 259 passengers and was a high-capacity, medium-range aircraft. The DC-8 Series 61 plane used for Flight 173 was delivered to United Airlines on May 22, 1968. At the time of the incident, the plane had accumulated 33,114 flight hours and was roughly 10 and a half years old. The captain of Flight 173 was Captain Malburn McBroom. Captain McBroom was 52 years old at the time of the incident. Born in Bonham, Texas in 1926, Captain McBroom was inspired to become a pilot after witnessing a barnstorming performance as a boy. During his teenage years, he signed up with the Navy and served on board a submarine in the South Pacific during World War II. After the war, Captain McBroom learned to fly and was hired by United Airlines in May 1951. At the time of the incident, he had been with United for the previous 27 years. Captain McBroom had 27,638 flight hours and 5,517 hours as a captain on the DC-8. The first officer of Flight 173 was First Officer Roderick Beebe. Born in Baldwinsville, New York in 1933, First Officer Beebe was 45 years old at the time of the incident. He joined the Navy and served in Korea before marrying in 1956. First Officer Beebe joined United Airlines in June 1965 and had been with the airline for the previous 13 years. He had recently been upgraded to First Officer in June 1978, six months before the incident. 
First Officer Beebe had 5,209 flight hours and only 247 hours as a first officer on DC-8s. The flight engineer for Flight 173 was flight engineer Forrest Mendenhall. Born in Dodge City, Kansas in 1937, flight engineer Mendenhall was 41 years old at the time of the incident. Known to his colleagues as Frosty, he was hired by United in December 1967. Based out of Fowler, Colorado, flight engineer Mendenhall lived in the area with his wife and two children. Flight engineer Mendenhall had 3,895 flight hours and 2,263 hours on the DC-8. There were five flight attendants on board Flight 173, Joan Wheeler, Nancy King, Sandy Bass, Martha Freilich, and Diane Woods. With a total flight crew of eight and 181 passengers on board, there were a total of 189 souls on board Flight 173. I would like to thank and acknowledge Julie Whipple, an educator and writer based out of Portland, Oregon, for assistance in the research for this episode. Julie wrote a book entitled Crash Course, which focuses on United Flight 173 in the aftermath of the crash. It was a great resource for learning about this incident. Her book Crash Course is available online, and there's a link to the book in the show notes for this episode. As we mentioned earlier, United Flight 173 originated in New York City earlier in the day on December 28, 1978. The DC-8 took off from JFK in New York during the midday hours and landed around four hours later in Denver at Stapleton International. There was a flight crew change in Denver, Captain McBroom, First Officer Beebe, and Flight Engineer Mendenhall all arrived at Stapleton Airport in the early afternoon hours. All three United employees had flown for only three hours and 38 minutes over the previous 24 hours, so they all arrived at work that afternoon well-rested. This flight crew was scheduled to fly Flight 173 to Portland in the early evening hours and then return to Denver on another flight later that same night. While the plane was on the ground in Denver, a few passengers from New York disembarked the aircraft, while a few other passengers that were on different connecting flights that had landed in Denver boarded Flight 173. The flight from Denver to Portland was scheduled to land in Portland at 5.13 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. With the flight crew of eight, which consisted of the three in the cockpit and five flight attendants, and the 181 passengers all on board the aircraft, the doors of the DC-8 were closed. The plane then taxied into position to take off from Stapleton International about a quarter before 4 p.m. local Denver time. The outside temperature at Stapleton was hovering just around 40 degrees Fahrenheit, and the sky was clear as the DC-8 rolled along the tarmac towards the top of the runway. At 3.47 p.m. on December 28, 1978, the pilots in the DC-8 pushed their throttles forward, firing up the plane's jet engines, and United Flight 173 blast down the runway at Stapleton International, lifting off into the clear Colorado sky en route to Portland, Oregon. For the next two hours and 18 minutes, Flight 173 steadily flies towards the northwest, flying above Colorado, Wyoming, Idaho, and eastern Oregon as the sun sets in the west. The flight's like any other normal flight. Passengers throughout the cabin are reading books and magazines. 
It's a few days after Christmas, so you'd imagine that many of the passengers are just staring out the window of the DC-8, reflecting on the good times they just had with their families over the holiday season. As Flight 173 approaches the airspace above the Portland area, the plane descends to around 10,000 feet, and the pilots confirm their altitude at 10,000 with Portland approach at 5.05 p.m., two hours and 18 minutes into the flight. This would be Captain McBroom's 13 approach into Portland for the month of December, as he had already flown into the city 12 times that month. Portland Approach advises Flight 173 to maintain its current heading for a visual approach to runway 28 at Portland International. The pilots in the cockpit respond by acknowledging the instructions and saying, we have the field in sight. Two minutes later at 5.07 p.m., Portland Approach radios to Flight 173 to descend to 8,000 feet, and the pilots respond by saying, leaving 10. Two more minutes pass, and at 5.09 p.m., Flight 173 is cleared to descend down to 6,000 feet. As the DC-8's making its descent down to 6,000, First Officer Beebe asks for the flaps to be set at 15 and asks for the landing gear to be dropped. Captain McBroom pulls the lever to drop the gear, and suddenly a loud bang is heard by passengers throughout the cabin. A sudden jolt is felt by everyone on board, the DC-8 yaws a bit to the right. The pilots observe that the landing gear indicator lights, the lights confirming that the landing gear is lowered and locked into place, are all dark. Flight engineer Mendenhall tells his crew that the circuit breaker for the lights has popped, so he resets it, and the nose and left landing gear lights turn on and turn green, but the right gear light remains unlit. While the pilots are trying to troubleshoot this issue, Portland Approach radios over to Flight 173 to pass them off to the tower at Portland International. Portland Approach thinks that Flight 173 is only a couple minutes away from landing. They're ready to have the tower step in and help Flight 173 get on the ground. Time is now 5.12 p.m., one minute prior to their planned landing time, and three minutes into this landing gear issue, where the gear is dropped loud bang was heard throughout the plane. Captain McBroom hops on the radio to respond to Portland Approach's attempt to push them off to the tower. Captain McBroom says, negative, we'll stay with you, we'll stay at five, we'll maintain about 170 knots, we got a gear problem, we'll let you know. So just to summarize, Flight 173 is at 5,000 feet in the skies above Portland. They're making their approach towards the airport, when they dropped the landing gear, there was a loud noise. The lights that confirm that the gear is down and locked are lit up for the nose gear and the left main gear, but the light for the right landing gear isn't lighting up. Captain McBroom just radioed over to Portland Approach to inform them about the issue, telling them that they're going to continue to fly at 5,000 feet so they can troubleshoot. Portland Approach acknowledges the message from Captain McBroom and tells Flight 173 to maintain 5,000. At 5.14 p.m., five minutes after the loud boom is heard on the plane, Portland Approach radios, United 173 Heavy, turn left heading 100, I'll just orbit you out there till you get your problem. One of the lead flight attendants enters the cockpit, and Captain McBroom informs her of the issue that they're having with the landing gear. Captain McBroom makes an announcement to passengers on board that they're having an issue with the landing gear and are working to resolve the matter. Nervous passengers on board start to wonder how bad this situation is. 
While Captain McBroom and First Officer Beebe troubleshoot the issue inside the cockpit, Flight Engineer Mendenhall heads out to the passenger cabin to see if he can visually confirm that the landing gear is down by looking out the passenger windows of the plane. Located on the top of the wings are small visual indicators, or tabs, that pop up slightly when the landing gear is dropped and locked properly into place. Flight Engineer Mendenhall looks outside the passenger cabin windows, and he sees that these tabs are popped up, and he returns back to the cockpit. He tells Captain McBroom and First Officer Beebe that the tabs are up on the wings, so the gear must be down and locked. The time is now just after 5.30 p.m. Around 20 minutes has passed since a loud bang jolted the plane. Flight 173 is flying a holding pattern above Portland at 5,000 feet. At 5.38 p.m., the pilots contact United Airlines Maintenance in San Francisco to see if they might have any suggestions on how to fix their landing gear light issue. You have to imagine that in Captain McBroom's mind, he's concerned about the condition of the plane because he doesn't have 100% confirmation that the right gear is down. He's worried that if he lands the plane, the right gear might collapse on impact with the runway. He's trying to figure out if there's any way to get this right landing gear light to turn on and confirm that the gear is indeed down. Captain McBroom reports to United Airlines Maintenance that they have 7,000 pounds of fuel on board and that he's planning on holding for just another 15 to 20 minutes. Convinced that there may be some need for an emergency evacuation, McBroom's also concerned with giving flight attendants as much time as necessary to prepare the cabin and passengers for an emergency evacuation. At 5.54 p.m., now 35 minutes after the loud boom, and 31 minutes after Flight 173 originally was supposed to land, United Maintenance radios, Okay, United 173, you estimate that you'll make a landing about five minutes past the hour. Is that okay? Captain McBroom responds, Yeah, that's a good ballpark. I'm not going to hurry the girls. We got about 165 people on board, and we want to take our time and get everybody ready, and then we'll go. It's clear as a bell and no problem. At this moment, Flight 173 is headed towards the Portland airport again, having completed one holding pattern loop above the city. A few seconds later, Captain McBroom starts talking with a flight attendant about making the announcement to brace before landing. The flight attendant comments, I'll be honest with you, I've never had one of these before. And Captain McBroom says, All right, what we'll do is we'll have Frosty, Frosty is flight engineer Mendenhall's nickname, We'll have Frosty, oh, about three minutes before touchdown signal for brace position. We'll either use the PA or we'll stand in the door and holler. The flight attendant replies, okay, uh, we're receding passengers right now and all the cabin lights are full up. We'll go take it from there. Around this time, Flight 173 starts a westwardly turn away from Portland Airport to start a second loop, still flying in that holding pattern above the city. At around 5.47 p.m., First Officer Beebe asks, How much fuel we got, Frosty? And Flight Engineer Mendenhall replies, 5,000, for the 5,000 pounds of fuel left in the DC-8's fuel tanks. An off-duty captain is seated in the jump seat of the cockpit, and a minute later at 5.48 p.m., the off-duty captain says, Less than three weeks. Three weeks to retirement. You better get me out of here. Captain McBroom replies, The thing to remember is don't worry. The off-duty captain says, yeah, 
If I might make a suggestion, you should put your coats on, both for your protection and so you'll be noticed, so they'll know who you are. Captain McBroom says, oh, that's okay. And the off-duty pilot says, if it gets hot, sure is nice not to have bare arms. Captain McBroom tells the off-duty pilot, if anything goes wrong, you just charge back there and get your ass off, okay? First Officer Beebe asks the captain, uh, what's the fuel show now, buddy? Captain McBroom replies, five, and then mentions that the feed pump lights are starting to blink. Portland Approach radios over to First Officer Beebe about air traffic in the vicinity, and First Officer Beebe confirms that he has a visual on the other plane in the sky. He says, I see somebody out there with a light on. At 5.50 p.m., now 41 minutes after the loud bang was heard throughout the plane, Captain McBroom says, Hey, Frosty, give us a current card on weight, figure about another 15 minutes. So Captain Broom here is basically revealing his intention to fly the plane for another 15 minutes, wants to know how much fuel they'll have. Flight engineer Mendenhall replies, not enough, 15 minutes is going to really run us low on fuel here. Then First Officer Beebe asks Flight Engineer Mendenhall if United Airlines maintenance had any good tips for confirming that the landing gear was down. Flight Engineer Mendenhall says United Airlines maintenance feels they've done everything possible to fix the situation. He says that he explained to maintenance that they're hesitant to recycle or bring the gear back up and deploy it again because if something's bent or broken, it might put the plane's landing gear in worse shape than it already is, assuming there's something wrong with it in the first place. Captain McBroom tells Flight Engineer Mendenhall to call a United Airlines representative on the ground in Portland to give them their passenger count and let them know that they'll be landing with 4,000 pounds of fuel and to pass that information along to the fire department. Flight Engineer Mendenhall replies, yes, sir. Then he communicates the information to the United ground employee in Portland. The United Airlines ground employee asks if Flight 173 will be landing around 6.05 p.m., and Captain McBroom confirms with a yes. The time is now 5.53 p.m., and Flight 173 is headed towards the northeast, still flying a holding pattern, almost about to complete its second loop above Portland. Flight engineer Mendenhall performs an approach descent check, and First Officer Beebe asks, How much fuel you got now? To which his flight engineer replies, four, 4,000 pounds. Captain McBroom asks flight engineer Mendenhall to take a walk back through the cabin, kind of see how things are going. He says he doesn't want to hurry the flight attendants, but he'd like to land in the next 10 minutes or so. Then Captain McBroom has a conversation with First Officer Beebe about the wind, weather concerns, who's going to do the shutdown of the plane once they land. They even talk about the composure of the flight attendants and if they think they'll be able to handle an emergency situation well. As you can imagine, Captain McBroom has a lot on his mind in this moment. He's worried about the gear collapsing, worried about an emergency evacuation, worried about the wind outside the plane. There's a lot racing through his mind all at once at this point in the flight. The time is now 6 p.m. on the button. And Flight 173 is headed north towards Portland Airport, having just completed its second loop above the city. At 6.01 p.m., Flight Engineer Mendenhall returns to the cockpit from his walk through the cabin. He says, you've got another two or three minutes in reference to the time before the cabin was prepared for landing. Captain McBroom says, okay, how are the people? Flight Engineer Mendenhall says, 
Well, they're pretty calm and cool. Some of them are obviously nervous, but for the most part, they're taking it in stride. I stopped and reassured a couple of them. They seemed a little bit more anxious than some of the others. Captain McBroom instructs Flight Engineer Mendenhall to get on the PA a few minutes before landing and say, assume the brace position. Flight Engineer Mendenhall says, okay, you've got about three on the fuel and that's it. At this point, Flight 173 makes a turn to the southwest and starts a third loop in its holding pattern above Portland. At 6.02 p.m., Portland Approach radios over. United 173 Heavy, did you figure anything out yet about how much longer? First Officer BB replies, Yeah, we uh, have indication that our gear is abnormal. It'll be our intention in about five minutes to land on 28 left. Portland Approach radios back, 73 Heavy, okay, advise when you'd like to begin your approach. Captain McBroom tells Portland Approach that the cabin still needs a few minutes to prepare, and Portland Approach asks for the number of souls on board and fuel status. Captain McBroom radios that there's 3,000 pounds of fuel on board. The pilots in the cockpit then talk about checking the landing gear warning horn to see if they can confirm that the gear is down. Then they go on to discuss whether the anti-skid and automatic spoilers will work when the circuit breakers for the landing gear are out. While this conversation is taking place, Flight 173 continues to fly towards the southwest away from Portland Airport. At 6.06 p.m., 57 minutes after the loud bang was heard when the landing gear was dropped, a flight attendant enters the cockpit. Captain McBroom says, how you doing? The flight attendant answers, well, I think we're ready, and then goes on to explain that they've reseated people in the passenger cabin and showed people how to open the exit doors. Captain McBroom says, okay, we're going to go in now. We should be landing in about five minutes. The captain says this at 6.06 p.m. Flight engineer Mendenhall interrupts the conversation between Captain McBroom and the flight attendant to say, I think you just lost number four, buddy, referring to one of the plane's engines. First Officer Beebe says, better get some crossfeeds open there or something. We're going to lose an engine, buddy. Confused, Captain McBroom asks, why? First Officer Beebe repeats, we're losing an engine. Again, Captain McBroom asks, why? First Officer Beebe replies, fuel. Open the crossfeeds, man. There's individual fuel tanks on the plane for each of the plane's four engines. Opening the crossfeeds allows fuel to flow freely between the tanks so that if one fuel tank is empty, it can pull fuel from another tank with fuel. Flight engineer Mendenhall says, showing fumes. Captain McBroom says, showing a thousand or better. First officer Beebe says, I don't think it's in there. And then referring to the number four engine, he says, it's flamed out. Captain McBroom radios to Portland approach. United 173 would like clearance for an approach into 28 left now. Portland approach immediately radios back. United 173 Heavy, okay, roll out, heading 010, be a vector to the visual runway 28 left. Time is now 6.07 p.m. and flight 173 is turning towards the north to fly towards the airport, but they're currently 19 miles south of Portland Airport. Ten seconds after the exchange between the captain and Portland approach, flight engineer Mendenhall says, we're going to lose number three in a minute too. Captain McBroom replies, you got a thousand pounds, you got to. Flight engineer Mendenhall answers, 5,000 in there, buddy, but we lost it. Asking if the opening of the crossfeeds are helping out at all, flight engineer Mendenhall asks, are you getting it back? 
First Officer Beebe replies, no number four. Captain McBroom tells Flight Engineer Mendenhall to open another crossfeed to get some fuel pressure going. And he says, rotation, now she's coming. Okay, watch one and two. We're showing down to zero or 1,000. First Officer Beebe says, still not getting it. Captain McBroom commands, open all four crossfeeds. You got to keep them running, Frosty. Flight Engineer Mendenhall responds, yes, sir. First Officer Beebe says, get this plane on the ground. Captain McBroom radios to Portland Approach. United 173 has got the field in sight now, and we'd like an ASR to 28 left. ASR is a surveillance approach where traffic control uses radar to guide a plane into the airport. Portland Approach says okay and tells Flight 173 to maintain 5,000. So the time is now 6.09 p.m. Exactly one hour has passed since the landing gear was dropped and the big boom was heard on the plane. Flight 173 is flying at 5,000 feet, they're dangerously low on fuel, and are completing their third loop above the city of Portland, headed north, trying to make it to the Portland airport. Flight engineer Mendenhall says, we're down to one on the totalizer, number two is empty. The totalizer is the fuel gauge that adds up all the fuel on board. Captain McBroom radios to Portland Approach, United 173 is going to turn toward the airport and come on in. Portland Approach responds, Okay, United 173 Heavy, turn left heading 360 and verify you do have the airport in sight. Captain McBroom replies, We do have the airport in sight, 173 Heavy. Approach responds, 173 Heavy is cleared visual approach, runway 28 left. At this point, the sound of an engine spooling down is heard in the cockpit. First Officer Beebe asks, You want the ILS on there, buddy? Captain McBroom answers, no, we'll get that damn warning thing if we do. The captain then asks to reset the circuit breakers, still trying to get the landing gear lights to come on. Captain McBroom radios to Portland Approach to ask how far they are from the airport, and Portland Approach responds, 18 flying miles. Flight engineer Mendenhall says, boy, that fuel sure went to hell all of a sudden. I told you we had four. Captain McBroom says, There's kind of an interstate highway thing along the bank on the river in case we're short. That's Troutdale over there at about six. First Officer Beebe says, let's take the shortest route to the airport. Again, Captain McBroom asks Portland Control, what's our distance now? Portland Approach responds, 12 flying miles. Captain McBroom says, about three minutes. Time is 6.13 p.m. 30 seconds later, Flight Engineer Mendenhall says, We've just lost two engines, one and two. Engines number three and four had already flamed out a few minutes earlier, and losing engines one and two meant that all four of the DC-8's engines were no longer operating. First Officer Beebe asks, You got all the pumps on and everything? Flight Engineer Mendenhall responds, Yep. Portland Approach radios over the frequency for the tower at Portland Airport and tells Flight 173 that they're eight to nine miles away. Captain McBroom says to his fellow officers, They're all going. We can't make Troutdale. First Officer Beebe says, We can't make anything. Captain McBroom shouts, Okay, declare a mayday. As the plane's engines spool down, the lights in the passenger cabin go dark. Flight attendants shout to passengers to keep their heads down and get into the brace position. First Officer Beebe radios to Portland Approach, Portland Tower, United 173 Heavy, Mayday, the engines are flaming out, we're going down, we're not going to be able to make the airport. Without any engine power, Flight 173 glides through the sky over the next 60 seconds, 
sinking closer and closer to the earth. Captain McBroom pulls at his control column and guides the DC-8 towards a patch of darkness on the ground below. The DC-8 narrowly misses the top of an apartment building and first comes into contact with the ground by striking two large evergreen trees standing at 100 feet above the earth. DC-8 then runs into several more large trees and the left wing of the plane is ripped off from the fuselage as it impacts an unoccupied house, completely destroying the home instantly. As the plane plows further ahead, the landing gear strikes an embankment that runs along East Burnside Street. The plane skids across Burnside and runs into more trees and demolishes another, luckily unoccupied, house. The vertical stabilizer of the plane tears through power lines that run above and along East Burnside Street, causing 7,000 homes in the area to lose power. Flight 173 eventually comes to a rest six and a half miles south of Portland Airport, near the intersection of East Burnside and 157th Avenue, around 6.15 p.m., one hour and two minutes after its scheduled landing time. The front of the plane was heavily damaged up to row six. From row six to the back of the plane, much of the inside of the passenger cabin was unharmed. Ten people died in the crash of Flight 173, eight passengers and two crew members. Flight engineer Forrest Mendenhall and flight attendant Joan Wheeler were killed in the crash. Fortunately, no one on the ground was injured on that late December night in 1978. So we understand that ultimately, United Flight 173 crashed because of fuel exhaustion. The pilots successfully flew the plane from Denver to the skies above Portland When they dropped their landing gear to prepare to land in Portland, there was a loud bang. Their landing gear indicator lights didn't all light up, which made the crew uncertain about whether the gear was actually down and properly locked into place. While troubleshooting this issue and preparing the passenger cabin for a possible emergency evacuation, the flight crew's workload increased and the crew became distracted and the plane burned through its remaining supply of jet fuel. Even though we know this basic explanation, I think there's still some interesting questions to be asked about this incident. Was there anything about the fuel gauges that made monitoring them or easily understanding their readings difficult? Were the fuel gauges reliable to begin with? Why'd the landing gear have an issue in the first place? What was communication like between pilots of commercial airliners in the late 1970s? First, let's start with the fuel gauges. On May 12, 1978, about seven and a half months prior to this incident, the DC-8 used for Flight 173 was retrofitted with a new fuel quantity indicating system. This new system was different from the old system. New system required a quick calculation to be made before knowing the amount of fuel available in each tank. You had to multiply the quantity displayed by 100. For instance, if the gauge said 15, you'd have to multiply by 100 to understand that there were 1,500 pounds of fuel in that particular tank. There were eight individual tank fuel gauges and then one totalizer gauge, which totaled all the fuel on board from all the different individual tanks. Things get a bit complicated with this new system because to get the real value of the totalizer quantity, you had to multiply by 1,000, not 100. So with the individual tanks, you multiply by 100, 
totalizer, you multiply by a thousand. With the old system, you just looked at the gauge and read the total fuel in the each tank or total quantity on board. Didn't have to make any of these quick calculations or keep straight which number you had to multiply by 100 or 1000. We don't know for certain, but maybe this recent change to the fuel gauges added to a bit of confusion when the pilots of Flight 173 were monitoring their plane's fuel state. On top of trying to solve the issue of the landing gear, process the adrenaline that comes from a stressful situation, and prepare the flight attendants and passengers for an emergency landing, the pilots also had a relatively new fuel indicating system that they had to interpret through calculations. It may have added to their already high workload and increased the probability of a wrong reading. Additionally, Captain McBroom testified in court after the accident that he had always assumed that the fuel quantity indicating systems were 100% accurate. Captain McBroom said that he later had come to learn that these fuel indicating systems have something called allowable tolerances in them, where each individual tank gauge could be off by 426 pounds. With the eight fuel tanks on the DC-8, this could have added up to 3,408 pounds of allowed inaccuracy. Captain McBroom went on to say that the totalizer had an allowable tolerance of 1,000 pounds as well, so if you add the two together, essentially the plane's fuel gauges could have been off by 4,408 pounds. He said he was unaware of this, and thus he wasn't able to factor this information into his judgment that night. Next, let's move on to the landing gear situation. As you recall from the story, at 5.09 p.m., one hour and six minutes before the crash of Flight 173, as the plane is descending down to 6,000 feet, Captain McBroom lowers the landing gear of the DC-8, and there's a loud boom heard throughout the plane. There's a jolt felt on board, and then the plane yaws to the right a bit. Well, when a DC-8 has its landing gear raised after takeoff or lowered after landing, there's a hydraulic system with a retract cylinder assembly that pulls the landing gear into the belly of the plane or slows the lowering of the gear for landing, so the heavy landing gear doesn't just free fall into place. Investigators discovered that on the DC-8 used for Flight 173, there was severe corrosion due to moisture on the threads of a piston rod and an eye bolt, parts of this landing gear retract cylinder assembly. This corrosion caused the two pieces to separate, which allowed the right landing gear to free fall into place at 5.09 p.m. on Flight 173. Because the right landing gear fell instantaneously into place, while the left landing gear slowly came down like usual, this caused the plane to yaw a bit to the right due to momentary differences in aerodynamic drag. This free falling of the right landing gear disabled the circuit to the cockpit landing gear indicator lights. So even though the gear had actually fallen and locked into place, the light confirming this position didn't light up in the cockpit. It turns out that McDonnell Douglas was already aware of corrosion issues within the retract cylinder assembly, and they had released bulletins advising operators of DC-8s to replace their assemblies, but United Airlines decided to do gamma-ray inspections instead, inspecting the assemblies for corrosion instead of just doing the more costly option of replacing them all. 
United eventually decided to install a bungee system to their landing gear, which ensured that the landing gear would drop and lock into place if the lowering hydraulic system failed. This is what occurred on Flight 173, but United failed to train their pilots to potentially expect this kind of free fall from landing gear. On Flight 173, when the landing gear falls, there's a huge noise, and the plane yaws to the right. Understandably, the pilots were confused and worried, because they were not prepared for such an occurrence. They were never trained to anticipate such an event, and therefore they spent an hour flying around trying to figure out what the hell had just happened. So we touched upon the newly replaced and sometimes inaccurate fuel gauges, and then the defective landing gear extension mechanism, both of which could have been contributing elements to this accident. But what about the communication between the pilots and the cockpit? And I think this is probably the number one thing that people think of when they reflect on United Airlines Flight 173 and its contribution to making flying safer for all of us today. Captain McBroom, First Officer Beebe, and Flight Engineer Mendenhall existed inside of a work culture in the 1960s and 1970s where you had a boss and then you had your subordinates. In the cockpit, the captain was in charge and the first officer and the flight engineer were there to assist the boss. Looking over the CVR from Flight 173, there were several instances where both first officer Beebe and flight engineer Mendenhall expressed concern about the diminishing amount of fuel on board. At 5.47 p.m., almost 30 minutes before the DC-8 would crash, First Officer Beebe asked Flight Engineer Mendenhall, How much fuel we got, Frosty? To which Flight Engineer Mendenhall replied, 5,000 for 5,000 pounds. This might have been the first time on Flight 173 that the First Officer and Flight Engineer were trying to indirectly communicate with their captain and bring to his attention that the fuel was running out. Around the same time, Captain McBroom was talking to an off-duty captain that was in the cockpit. He didn't really react to this exchange between his first officer and flight engineer. Observing that Captain McBroom didn't really react, two minutes later, First Officer Beebe gets a little more direct and asks Captain McBroom, Uh, what's the fuel show now, buddy? Captain replies, five, and then acknowledges that the fuel feed pump lights are starting to blink before getting distracted in another conversation concerning the landing gear. Another two minutes pass, and Captain McBroom says that he wants to fly the plane for another 15 minutes, to which Flight Engineer Mendenhall says, 15 minutes? 15 minutes is going to really run us low on fuel here. Unfortunately, no one in the cockpit really reacts to this comment from Flight Engineer Mendenhall. So inside this four-minute window, 25 minutes before the plane crashes, we can clearly see that First Officer Beebe, who mentions fuel twice, and Flight Engineer Mendenhall with his 15 minutes is really going to run us low on fuel comment, both are worried about the dwindling amount of fuel on the plane. They're both trying to indirectly communicate with their captain and politely navigate the proper cockpit or workplace etiquette of the time. Neither of them get direct and say, Captain McBroom, This plane is dangerously low on fuel, and we need to get the damn plane on the ground immediately. Everyone in the cockpit's making assumptions. Captain McBroom might be assuming there's no fuel problem because no one has loudly spoken up about it. First officer and flight engineer assume Captain McBroom has listened to their indirect comments 
is aware of the issue and feels that it's safe to continue flying. The work culture of the 1970s of not questioning your superior's judgment and being afraid to step on the boss's toes because you might be seen as confrontational or insubordinate leads to catastrophic consequences for Flight 173. Over 16 minutes pass after these initial indirect exchanges about fuel concerns. At 6.06 p.m., the number four engine starts to go down, and First Officer Beebe says, we're losing an engine. Captain McBroom asks why, and First Officer Beebe replies, fuel. At 6.06 p.m., when the engine starts shutting down due to fuel starvation, Captain McBroom finally gets the message that fuel is an issue on the plane. All the indirect communication and distractions have led to a horrible situation where the pilots can no longer save the plane. Luckily, professionals in the world of aviation were able to study this incident and come to the realization that it was necessary to make improvements in the way that captains, first officers, and flight engineers communicate with one another. Because of Flight 173 and similar incidents, pilots today undergo CRM training or crew resource management training. We've talked about CRM on previous episodes, but for those of you that might be hearing about it for the first time, CRM teaches pilots how to better communicate with one another and maximize their abilities as a team. First and second officers are encouraged to speak up clearly and assert themselves if they see a problem or issue developing. Captains are taught to foster an environment where criticism and advice from other members of the flight crew are welcomed and encouraged. United Airlines was the first airline to institute CRM training for their flight crews in 1981. Beyond just pilots, flight attendants have also been included in CRM training as well. Now entire flight crews are prepared to communicate efficiently as a team, and we passengers all enjoy enhanced safety when traveling by air due to CRM training. Today, CRM training is taught to medical teams that perform surgeries, train crews that operate trains on railways, and deck officers on board merchant ships. CRM has enhanced safety across many different fields, and United Airlines Flight 173 played a critical role in its development. So that's how Flight 173 helped make flying safer for all of us today. The incident was instrumental in the development of CRM training. CRM training has led to less human air on board planes, which has prevented many accidents over the past four decades. The NTSB report said that the probable cause of the accident was the failure of the captain to monitor properly the aircraft's fuel state and to properly respond to the low fuel state and the crew members' advisories regarding fuel state. This resulted in fuel exhaustion to all engines. His inattention resulted from preoccupation with a landing gear malfunction and preparations for a possible landing emergency. Contributing to the accident was the failure of the other two flight crew members either to fully comprehend the criticality of the fuel state or to successfully communicate their concern to the captain. So while all that may be true to a degree, it's a little narrow from my perspective and puts too much of the blame solely on the flight crew. The report really didn't address the unreliability of the fuel gauges that Captain McBroom spoke about in the civil trial afterwards, or United Airlines' choice to not train their pilots to expect the occasional free fall of landing gear, since they were aware the landing gear for DC-8s had a corrosion issue that they chose not to fix and just inspect on occasion for. 
Again, I would really like to thank Julie Whipple for her book, Crash Course, which is based upon this incident. Julie was very kind and helped shed some light on some aspects of this accident for this episode of PCPC. If any of you are interested in learning more about Flight 173, I encourage you all to purchase her book, which was an excellent read. You can find it on Amazon and in bookstores. You can listen to it on audible.com. And she has a website as well, juliewhipple.com. Thanks again to Julie. Now it's time to bring in Tess. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. So Tess, what did you think about the story of Flight 173? Would you say the blame rests more with the pilots or the airline? Uh, Yeah, I thought it was a really interesting story. Um, I think that you know, the obvious reason for the crash is that it ran out of gas, but there are a lot of contributing factors leading up to that that had to do both with the airline and the pilots. Um, First of all, the fact that the plane was defective and that the airline hadn't, um, you know, had cut costs by doing only an inspection and not replacing the landing gears. And then there was the fact that the pilots were uh, not properly trained in CRM, so they weren't um, communicating effectively Mm -hmm. in the cockpit. Uh, I think we've talked about crashes before as being kind of a product of their time, and Mm -hmm. I think that this is a really good example of that, that the the pilots just didn't have the proper training and uh, the culture in the cockpit was different. There was less, like you said, questioning of the boss, that wasn't something that was done. So even though um, the flight engineer and the co-pilot had brought it to the captain's attention that they were running out of fuel, um, they may have also made the assumption that he had it under control, that he knew what was going on. Yeah. Um, and he may have made the assumption that they were monitoring the fuel situation, given that they'd already mentioned that it was a problem. So if they had a little more awareness of who was doing what in the cockpit, they may have been able to successfully land the plane. Yeah. I think this uh, crash really reminded me of Eastern Airlines Flight 401. You remember that one that we did about Halloween and the Everglades, mm-hmm. where they just had this event occur and 
they got distracted by landing gear lights and preparing the cabin, and they lost sight of flying the plane. You always need someone flying the plane. There were a lot of assumptions being made on both sides. And the airline just simply didn't adequately train these pilots to be prepared for the possibility that a landing gear, uh, one of the main gear might fall down and cause the plane to yaw and create a loud boom that's going to scare you and also destroy the sensor that's going to give you a confirmation that your landing gear is down. So I think this was a painful lesson the airline industry had to experience to learn this flaw that they had in communication between pilots in the cockpit and, you know, institute training that would prevent this from occurring again in the future. Absolutely. In some ways, the airline industry and the pilots didn't yet know what they didn't know, if that makes any sense. Totally makes sense that they were like living and existing inside this culture that was poor for communication, poor for operating a massive plane when you have 200 people's lives at risk. Exactly. Yeah. And they didn't have the proper tools to communicate in the cockpit effectively. Yeah. I think I read online that each engine on the DC-8 burns between 3,000 to 3,500 pounds of fuel per hour. So the DC-8 has four engines. This means the plane was burning between 12,000 and 14,000 pounds of fuel per hour. So at 5.47 p.m., 28 minutes before the plane crashes, when the flight engineer says, we have 5,000 pounds of fuel left. Essentially, what he was saying was, we have 25 minutes of fuel left. Turns out the engines started going out 20 minutes after that comet. So the combo of flying around with the landing gear down and the flap set at 15 probably meant the plane was burning fuel at an accelerated rate. In any event, yes, the fuel gauges might have had some issue, as Captain McBroom said, but the pilots probably should have shown more urgency about getting the plane on the ground when everybody knew the plane had 5,000 pounds of fuel left. Definitely. It seemed like the priority was making sure the cabin was ready for an emergency landing Mm -hmm. and making sure the passengers were okay. You know, when the captain asked, how are the people doing? That was sort of what what his focus was on, at least, in that moment. He was preparing for one emergency when, in reality, he was about to enter a different type of emergency. Definitely. And this crash happened at a time before the whole mental health awareness movement that we've been living through. Um, One thing that I kind of related with Captain McBroom was I feel like he was experiencing possibly just anxiety. This blast of adrenaline, this huge boom occurs, the plane shakes and yaws to the right. That would freak me out if I was flying the plane. And I I feel like he was maybe just suffering from tunnel vision. I don't know if you've experienced anxiety. I'm someone that has had anxiety. And when I'm experiencing anxiety, my brain doesn't work as uh, I would like it to work. I often get focused on little details and might lose the big picture, I get tunnel vision. And I feel like that might be a possibility of what Captain McBroom was dealing with was, how can I get this light on? And the flight attendants need as much time as possible to get strong people by the exit rows and stuff like that. I totally related to that too. I mean, that absolutely happens to me that I kind of lose sight of my surroundings sometimes when I'm anxious. Um, and I've even had situations where I've been driving actually and not realized I was really low on fuel because I was dealing with some other situation. I was, you know, had something else in my head and mm-hmm. I was focused on that. So 
I totally understand how that could have happened to yeah. someone. If especially if he thinks that he might be landing with one landing gear. Yeah, totally. He was really fixated on I'm going to land this plane and the ga- landing gear is going to collapse. Tell people on the ground how much fuel's on board. Let's make sure we can evacuate the plane as efficiently as possible. One other thing that kind of jumped out at me and this is a little bit of a side note, but if you are going to be on a plane that's going to crash, being on a plane that has no fuel on it seems like a pretty good deal. Like that's one reason so many people survived this accident was there was no fire afterwards. The plane didn't explode when it crashed into trees and homes. There was no fuel left mm-hmm. on the plane. So even though a lot of people died and were injured and I'm not happy about that, it, it, there is something interesting about a plane going down with no fuel on it. It seems like it increases your probability of surviving. Right. Yeah. Many of the people on board the plane that night described a strange calmness after the plane came to rest. There was no pushing or panicking to get off the plane, just a bunch of shocked passengers wondering why they were surrounded by all these trees. Hmm, that's interesting. There was a 20-year reunion held for survivors and family members of the victims from Flight 173 in 1998. Captain McBroom attended the reunion, and to his surprise, he was warmly received by most everyone there. He was quoted in an interview as saying, The fact that I lost some people and destroyed the airplane, it's painful. He mentioned that he had considered suicide at one point, but couldn't do that to his family. Captain McBroom lost his pilot's license due to the accident and couldn't fly commercial planes afterwards. From the accident, he sustained a broken leg, ribs, shoulder, and permanent nerve damage. The surviving passenger from Flight 173, Amy Ford Connor, said of Captain McBroom, the choices he made about how to put the plane down were life-saving for the people on the ground and people on the plane. What I really wound up feeling for him was a great deal of empathy and sorrow. Another surviving passenger, Mary Claire Devaney, said of Captain McBroom, I hope he's at peace now, truly at peace. We never, ever, ever blamed him. We always knew he had done the best he could. Captain Malburn McBroom passed away at the age of 77 on October 9th, 2004. There's an interesting story associated with the crash of Flight 173. On board was a prisoner named Kim Edward Campbell. Campbell was 27 years old at the time of the crash. In October 1976, he was sentenced to four years in prison in Oregon for robbery. In January 1978, while serving time in an Oregonian penitentiary forest camp located in Tillamook County, Campbell escaped and was on the run for most of the year. Colorado police eventually apprehended Campbell, and Captain Roger Seed from the Oregon Corrections Division traveled to Denver to escort Campbell back to Oregon to serve out his sentence. The two had friendly conversation on the plane, and when the DC-8 crashed, both the corrections officer and the escapee helped passengers exit the plane. The corrections officer said that the plane's emergency chutes did not deploy, so it was hard for passengers to get down on the ground. The corrections officer jumped out of the plane, and Campbell, the escapee, stayed on the plane, helping to lower passengers to safety. Campbell searched through the plane for more survivors and helped them find a way off the plane. Once everyone was eventually off the plane, Kim Edward Campbell slipped into the night and escaped capture yet again. The corrections officer, Roger Seed, was quoted as saying, All I know is that that kid did a hell of a good job of helping get people out of that plane. 
and I just wish he hadn't split like he did. Campbell called his parents three hours after the crash to let him know that he was okay, and he was arrested by Portland police seven months later in July 1979. What do you think about that, Tess? I would say he deserved a seven-month-long vacation. Yeah, it was nice of him to you know, rise to the moment and not see it as an advantageous moment to split immediately. He helped get everyone off the plane and then was like, this is my opportunity to not go to jail. Yeah, I mean, I might have done the same thing if I were him. Yeah. Another interesting story around Flight 173 is the story of the Alloway family. Twelve days prior to the crash of Flight 173, the Lincoln Loan Company of Portland evicted the Alloway family from their Portland home family had lived in the home for the previous year, after originally moving to Portland from San Luis Obispo. Twelve days after their eviction, a DC-8 falls from the sky and completely demolishes their former home. Interviewed in the local paper, Mrs. Alloway said that she was going to call the owner of the loan company and thank him for being the way he was. Because if, he, if they hadn't been evicted, they most likely would have been killed in the crash of Flight 173. Tess, is that the happiest eviction story you've ever heard? It absolutely is. <laughs> yeah, nothing like evicting people right before the holidays or right before a plane crash. One more personal account on Flight 173 comes from Paula Medaglia, courtesy of the Seattle Times. Paula said that after the loud bang came from the landing gear, everyone in the passenger cabin could tell something was wrong. She said, those were the days when you could still smoke on a plane and nearly everybody, including myself, lit up. So after the bang, everyone started chain-smoking. She said people at the front of the plane were putting on coats and grabbing blankets, so the people in the back of the plane did the same. Paula stated that she buried her head in her coat as the plane crashed, and she heard several loud booms as the plane hit trees and houses. Afterward, she jumped 10 feet down to the ground and rode a bus to the airport. She said on the bus that someone had a bottle of Jack Daniels, and everyone was just sharing it, just passing the bottle around. Sounds like a much cooler world than today's world, eh, Tess? You can just light up cigs and drink. Today we just remain in the fetal position all day on the couch. Yeah, I mean, at least they went down in style. Yeah, I like the idea of them just sitting on the bus being like, hey man, need a pull of whiskey? And be like, oh yeah, it was a rough night. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that's going to do it for Flight 173. I again, would like to say thank you to Julie Whipple for all her help. Uh, Tess, are you ready for today's vocab words? Sure, Michael. Hit me with your best words. Our first word today is impecunious. Impecunious, spelled I-M-P-E-C-U-N-I-O-U-S. Impecunious. Just as impolite means not polite and impossible means not possible, impecunious means not pecunious. Pecunious means being wealthy, being moneyed. So impecunious is an adjective that means having little or no money, being poor. Used in a sentence, you could say, Robert wanted to fly to London, but he stayed at home and ate ramen because he was impecunious. Synonyms for impecunious are penniless, poor, indigent, and broke. Our second word today is upbraid. Upbraid, spelled U-P-B-R-A-I-D. Upbraid is a verb which means to criticize harshly or scold vehemently. For instance, let's say a man is on a flight and a flight attendant asks him to remain seated until the seatbelt sign is turned off, but he ignores her, unbuckles his seatbelt, starts getting into the overhead bin. 
The man's wife witnesses all this, and when he sits back down next to her, she really lays into him. She tells him he's absolutely disgraceful. She can't believe he disobeyed the flight attendant's instruction. She's disappointed in him and expects more out of him, while the wife would be upbraiding her husband. Synonyms for upbraid are berate, censure, reprimand, and chastise. So that's upbraid. Tess, are you ready for your quiz? I'm going to read a sentence, and you tell me which word it applies to. As long as you don't upbraid me for getting an answer wrong. (laughs) Well, maybe you don't even need to do this quiz then. Uh, The captain severely reprimanded his first officer after he witnessed the first officer light up a cigarette immediately after takeoff. Upbraid. (laughs) The man had never flown on a plane because airline tickets were expensive and he hadn't a dollar to his name. He was an impecunious type. Yes, exactly. That's great. Well, that's it for our vocab for today's episode. Tessa, are you ready for a few stories from the world of airline news? Sure, Michael. This first story was reported by Hugo Martin of the Los Angeles Times a few days ago. We've discussed on the pod before that United Airlines has committed to being carbon neutral as an airline by the year 2050. Well, to showcase the progress that they've made, on December 1st, 2021, United flew a Boeing MAX 8 plane from Chicago to Washington using recycled cooking oil to power one of the plane's two engines. This was a first in the world of commercial aviation, where an engine was completely powered by biofuel. Are we sure that's safe? They didn't just, like, read something on the internet? (laughs) (laughs) I think uh, people got there safely, so it must have been okay. Uh, Reused cooking oil reduces emissions by 80% compared to conventional jet fuel. The International Air Transport Association has stated that switching to sustainable fuels would represent 65% of the work necessary for airlines to get to net zero emissions. Embracing new technologies and investing in carbon capture plants are also thought to be part of the uh, calculation for cutting down significantly on emissions. U.S. airlines burned through 18.3 billion gallons of fuel in 2019. While the amount of biofuel currently produced in the U.S. is a drop in the bucket compared to the amount of fuel needed by airlines, you have to start somewhere, and airlines like United and JetBlue are starting to integrate biofuels into their businesses. Tess, would you like to fly in a plane that's powered by oil that was frying your egg rolls only a few days earlier? Well, why not? Why not? I'll throw caution to the wind. And in fact, I have some coconut oil, grapeseed oil, and avocado oil that I'd like to donate to the cause. Yeah, I thought it was pretty amazing to read in the LA Times that airlines are actually starting to do this right now. It's no longer just like this theoretical thing. Pie in the sky idea, yeah. Maybe airlines will start having like fryers on flights that start serving more kind of like bar food to passengers. Maybe an air fryer? I'd love to get some wings on a JetBlue flight. (laughs) Maybe it'll happen in the near future. Test with the end of 2021, the on-time rankings for international and domestic airlines was just released. Two Japanese airlines, Al Nippon Airlines and Japan Airlines, were at the top of the list globally. Both airlines were around 95% on-time arrival rate. Russian airline Aeroflot was in the third spot with 91% on-time arrival rate. And the U.S. Delta Airlines was in the top spot with 89% on-time arrival rate. Alaska Airlines was in second place, followed up by American and United. They were around 80%. JetBlue fell to the sixth spot for 2021. Domestic airlines were hit hard all year with staffing issues due to COVID and various delays due to weather. Tess, how important is it to you that an airline is rated high and on-time service? Does it matter to you? Are you easy to please? I would say anybody 
that knows me would say I'm easy to please. I mean, come on. But when it comes to flights, the only time I'll accept a late flight is if there's inclement weather. Yeah. I think I'm just easy to please. I'm just like, get me wherever I need to be alive. As long as it's safe. Yeah, Yeah. that's true. My mom was telling me that she had a friend that worked in the airline industry. And she told my mom to always fly first thing in the morning. That those are the least likely to get delayed. Because if there's some sort of weather issue during the day, Mm -hmm. the schedule gets all messed up. So Mm -hmm. if you need any advice, you really need to get somewhere and it needs to be reliable, book your morning flight. Yeah. I will say that it really helps to give passengers a heads up if you think that the flight's going to be delayed because that actually happened to me on this most recent flight from Boston to LA. And Mm -hmm. there was a storm coming in that night, which um, was supposed to come in like right around the time that I was supposed to fly out. But I did get a notice night before saying, hey, this storm is coming. You have the option to either switch your flight, cancel it, or... Uh, roll the dice. Roll the dice. And I chose to roll the dice. And you because, succeeded. Yeah. And here I am back in LA. So Sounds like no delays. Day. And you flew Delta, right? I flew Delta. Number one in the US. Mm-hmm. So. They well, have really good customer service, I will say. Yeah. I feel like the times I've flown Delta, I like the flight attendants. They seem happy. They seem like they're treated well. So. Yeah. And their movie selection is pretty good. I, th- I still think JetBlue has the best selection, but. Yeah. But they're sixth in on-time ratings. Get your act together, JetBlue. Come on. <laughs> Lastly, Lufthansa announced in December that St. Louis, Missouri would be getting its first transatlantic flight in 20 years, starting in June 2022. Lufthansa will be operating three flights a week between St. Louis and Munich every Sunday, Wednesday, and Friday. Lufthansa will also start offering nonstop service between San Diego and Munich starting in March 2022. It's nice for the people of St. Louis to finally gain a non-stop flight straight to Europe. San Diego already has a non-stop option to Tokyo and London, but now the good people of San Diego can easily get to Munich. Tess, you kind of think there's going to be a lot of German St. Louisans roaming the streets of Munich for Oktoberfest next fall. Have you ever been to an Oktoberfest? Never. I went to Oktoberfest in Big Bear one year. I had several beers, got a tarot card reading, and right as I was leaving, I don't remember if I found them on the ground or someone gave them to me, but I found a huge bushel of drink tickets. And I ended up staying there, drinking more beer, having a great time, but having one of the worst next days of my life. Wow. Did the tarot card reading tell you that would happen? I don't know. Maybe that was like lucky. I think somebody might have given me the tickets, but I just remember Big Bear is at an elevation of 7,500 feet. I just remember the next day, I just felt so awful. So the tarot card reader wasn't like, oh, the death card. (laughs) You will feel like death tomorrow. (laughs) Well, uh, I think that's going to do it for today's episode of PCPC. Thank you to Tess Andrade for joining us. Tess, you want to say anything to the people? Oh, you always ask me this every time, and I'm never prepared for it. Um, Thank you to all our very loyal listeners. We're really sorry that this past year did not bring with it a whole lot of episodes, but we're hopeful that 2022 will be the year of PCPC. We're back. We're better than ever. (laughs) And we're going to be making episodes. Yeah. Thanks to all the listeners out there. Thanks to the Patreon crew, all the people that send us kind messages on Instagram, Twitter, email. We get them all. We read them. And that's why you're getting an episode today. Thank you again to Julie Whipple and her book Crash Course, which is available on Amazon. I know these haven't been the greatest two years of our lives, but I hope you're all staying strong out there. 
working hard, taking care of your families and friends and strangers you don't even know, but you just have compassion for anyways. I hope to get another episode up as soon as possible, and I've missed hanging out with you all. I hope you're all having a great 2022, and I'll talk to you all again soon. Love you guys. Bye-bye. Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.